Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Cal Flynn. She's an award-winning writer from the Highlands of Scotland. And her latest book, Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape, is a bestseller. She was shortlisted for numerous awards, including the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction. And her journalistic writing has been published in Granta, The Sunday Times Magazine, The Telegraph Magazine, The Economist and many others. She was the 2021 Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year. And the following episode was recorded in front of a live audience at The Times and The Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. Let's talk about this wonderful, wonderful book, because first of all, I just want to establish, would you call it a nature book? Yes, I do. It does depend a little bit who I'm talking to, but I think I started it thinking of it as a nature book, although it was also tied up with the idea of it being an exploration of aesthetics as well, because that's, I suppose, why I'm initially interested in abandoned places is that sense of their strange beauty, almost perverse beauty. So I sort of started from there, but then realized that there was this whole analogous area of ecology that was looking at how brownfield sites or somehow very polluted and contaminated sites could also be ecologically valuable. And that seemed to me to be kind of two sides of the same story. Mm. So yes, it's a nature book. It's got elements of travel. It's got elements of, of science. I wonder if you could define abandonment. Yeah, it's it's actually difficult. So um, when I started, you know, you have a sort of feeling about what qualifies. And then it took maybe between six months and a year to sort of get down to the nitty gritty of exactly what kind of places I was interested in. And abandonment, it turned out, because some of my sites are urban abandonment, which means that there are actually rather a lot of people around. And so it seemed to me to be the abandonment of its original purpose. So perhaps these were derelict factory sites and, and the fact that people lived in them still, they were still somehow abandoned because they had lost that original sense and were now sort of in some kind of afterlife. And I guess that's, that's what I was interested in, this sense of afterlife of, of human-impacted places. So that might be an empty house or it might be an old farm that's now turning into to forest, uh, anything like that when you feel there's a sort of trace of, of the purpose of before. Mm. So what is it then, do you think, that drew you to those places and to write about this subject? I think very much is this, um, what they do to you. While I was um, you know, saying what I was looking for, and it took a while to be like, well, actually, am I looking at, at ruins? And I went out to a few. The highlands where I, I'm from originally are absolutely full of abandoned villages. And you, you walk through them, but some of them affect you in different ways. And then I, I, I figured out that, really, I was interested in this sort of uncanny valley feeling of an abandoned house that feels left behind but it's not quite slipped into the safety of a ruin, which might then be sort of stripped of all of its fittings, and and it's really just the outline of what was there before. I was more interested in these spaces that you might step into and feel strange to be there. I I think the Uncanny Valley is the best way of thinking about it, because um, you look at it and it does look like a safe place, like a living room, like a kitchen, but there's something a little bit off. 
and it sets the hairs on the back mm -hmm. of your neck going. And that feeling was what I was trying to summon up in every chapter in a slightly different way. I mean, it's incredibly atmospheric. When I'm preparing for events like this, I jot down, you know, words from the book. And in the end, I realised I was actually transcribing the book because, because so much, it was just so beautifully written. Uh, and one of the things that you say, you make the point that we need to retrain our eyes and our sensibilities to appreciate sights that may be superficially ugly, but as you write, are more authentically alive than more celebrated beauty spots. Can you just unpick that for us? Absolutely. I think, um, certainly for me, this, this book, it was a process of learning how to look at nature and understanding that, yes, as, as you say, you know, these celebrated beauty spots that we go to and we take photos of, many of these are actually a sort of veneer of nature because perhaps people are tending to the trees or have planted those trees or, you know, have trimmed them. And uh, that might be a very different thing to a naturally regrown forest, which perhaps is not quite so picturesque, but might have a biodiversity of many, many, many times what we've just been admiring. And I think beginning to unpick that idea, and also, I suppose, thinking about self-willed landscapes, uh, these sort of feral ecosystems that can come across that don't depend on us to, to manage them, because so much of our interaction with nature is sort of telling it what to do or, or passing judgment on it or trying to prioritize one particular species over another. And that's not to say that that's not important in its place, but the, the sites I was most interested in were these ones that I guess are running themselves and you have to sort of respect their agenda. Mm. They've got their own thing going on. And, and, and so much of the time we, we think about our relationship with nature as one of stewarding or managing or somehow being in charge. And Thank God, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, it's maybe better that we begin to be colleagues or peers. Mm. Mm. You start the book uh, explaining about the forbidden experiment. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. So the, I suppose I find a sort of analogy in when I started the book, I was living in Edinburgh, and in the Firth of Forth, uh, the waterway that I could see from my house, there are some abandoned islands, and they were fortresses. And there, um, James VI of Scotland, he did an experiment in which he, well, this is, you know, apocryphal possibly, but sent two babies and a, a deaf nursemaid onto the island with the idea that he would leave them alone for a period of years and then come back and see if they were speaking the prelapsarian language of God. And, you know, the, the reports of the success of this are somewhat mixed. And I think it does depend a little bit on what kind of God you might be looking for. <laughs> but um, this was called the forbidden experiment because of the sort of terrible future that it imposed upon those who were taking part. And I think that to some extent, all of the sites that I include in this are forbidden experiments. It's not that I'm recommending we have more of these terrible blasted sites because of their scientific interest. It's more this has happened, and, and in many cases, it's a terrible tragedy. You know, I talk about the Chernobyl exclusion zone, or, or um, in Montserrat, zone V, the exclusion zone there around the, the volcano. It's not so much that we should make this happen, it's what can we learn from this, you know, about nature's recovery, nature's regeneration. These are redemption stories, and I think there's a lot we can take from them. It's an incredibly hopeful book. I mean, one doesn't think it's going to be, and it is very hopeful and very about a theme, I think, that runs through it is about rewilding the soul, and it's just, right. just lovely. Um, let's go in specifically to talk about biodiversity, but particularly Canvey Wick. Mm. So um, you might be aware of this case. It's really interesting. A former oil terminal on Canvey Island. It's now sort of been dubbed 
England's brownfield rainforest because it is so incredibly biodiverse. These brownfield or derelict sites are often very rich in invertebrate life, sometimes reptile life, but invertebrate life is a big one. They did a survey there and found all sorts of rare spiders and beetles and so on, and now it's been fenced off and saved by this charity called Bug Life, which do excellent work in looking at these brownfield sites for their potential. And um, I think sites like that and, and others are sort of a really good example of this, how we have to peel apart the aesthetics or the prettiness of a site and its value, because often these sites that are very important and are sort of safe havens for nature don't necessarily look pretty in, in the way that you might expect when you say, you know, there's hundreds of plant species here. And oftentimes that's because of the sheer lack of disturbance in, in sites like this. Perhaps they're considered to be valueless or ugly and uh, maybe dangerous, and that's why people have been avoiding them. And then over time, it's the passage of time that allows this to happen. They sort of, the life builds up in layers and layers and layers. Mm. You write that we need to be more sophisticated in our looking. There's one line that I particularly love. You say, we need to see landscape, not in terms of the picturesque, but with an eye on its ecological virility. I think that's such a powerful line, and that, that's exactly what you're talking about, really. Yes, absolutely, and, and you know, I do think that, that ecologists are working in this area. In, in the UK, we've now made what's called an open mosaic habitat, a priority habitat. Now, what that is, it's, you tend to find them only on brownfield sites, and it will be places where there are perhaps small stagnant pools, a bit of broken old tarmac, some brambles growing here or there, but the point is that they're all little bits really close together. You tend to find them on these brownfield sites, and that's amazing for invertebrate species that need different conditions for different parts of their life cycle. So, through a happy accident, these derelict sites have become incredibly helpful. I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, of course, for many years we were prioritizing redeveloping these sites. And to some extent, these sites are ephemeral and it can be difficult to protect them because the reason that they're so biodiverse is because they're in a process of, of changing from something into something else. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the Five Sisters in West Lothian. Sure, absolutely. So. Um, the Five Sisters are one of a number of industrial bings. So these are sort of spoil heaps, enormous piles of, of gravel, basically, um, that were created in the 19th century during the oil shale mining industry. So they developed a technique by which you would dig up the oil shale, break it into bits, superheat it, and sort of evaporate off the paraffin, and you'd be left with this red-hot stone. And so they just piled it up in enormous piles. And if you go west from Edinburgh, you'll drive through this landscape, which is quite sort of flat agricultural landscape. And then it has these enormous, you know, um, Ayers Rock-type growths coming out of it because they are incredible colors. And so I'd gone through this my whole life without really thinking about it. Um, they're sort of like hills, but they're also sort of not. They're very obviously artificial. They weren't very popular locally, at least for a long time, partly because they were dangerous, because every so often they'd sort of spontaneously <laughs> combust in sections. They could be dangerous for people who were around and about. They were popular with teenagers looking for somewhere to hang out. These days they're used by dirt bikers. But over the decades, um, the last mine closed in the 1960s, and many of them before, they've slowly been regrowing. And to me, they seemed like an excellent example, a, a case study of, of the concept of succession. So this is the sort of basic 
principle that, that lies behind this nature reclaiming concept. And, and so to begin with, you get the, the random seeds, you know, the dandelions that drift in, the tiny spiders that drift in. It's a similar process by which uh, a volcanic island becomes covered in vegetation. So you get these little weeds, and you might get some lichen and moss, and what that does is it begins to hold everything down. Then you get the grasses. Over time, you start getting bigger shrubs, and over time, you, if there's sort of enough to hold them there, trees. And these bings, which are enormous, have got a lot of silver birches growing in them. In fact, a sort of genetically distinct type of silver birch has started to be there. They're also home to things like hares and foxes and skylarks. And this very weird mix of um, plant species. So there was a, a PhD student from Edinburgh University called Barbara Harvey a few years ago did a survey and she found, I think it was 350 or so plant species in these post-industrial bings, which is more than you will find on Ben Nevis. You know, it's an incredible mix. And it's a mix of stuff from all over. You know, it really is uh, feral. You know, you'll have some garden ornamental varieties. You've got some subarctic stuff of the kind that you might find in the Cairngorms. You know, it's all sorts of things, but they've just happened to find a spot that works for them. And then nobody's disturbed them. And so it's, it's growing up in this sort of rambunctious sort of mm. mess. <laughs> um, you, you go to Cyprus too, because the, you visit the buffer zone, where of course nobody's disturbed that either. But you also do tell the very human story of the people that had to abandon it. Yeah, that's right. I think I had to think about this quite early on, about how to approach writing about abandonment. Because to begin with, I did think that um, people would be there in the negative. But A, I had to rethink this partly because, um, well, a lot of the time there were people there. So there might be people who'd snuck in. As I found in Chernobyl, there is a small community of people who went back to their homes there. Or homeless people who lived within um, mills in, in Patterson in New Jersey and so on. But also because, well, if you're writing about abandonment, these are human stories. And I think the only responsible way to write about these issues is to talk about the human impact of what had happened. So in, in Cyprus, I, I talked to a local man called Yannikis who had lost his home as a quite young boy, um, was made a refugee overnight. And now he lives in the Republic of Cyprus, but looks across the buffer zone to the farm that was once his family's citrus farm. And he can't get to it, but he still has the paperwork. And of course, there's a huge amount of anger there. In that part of the buffer zone, where it's very wide, the buffer zone stretches across Cyprus from east to west. And at some parts of it are very wide, some bits very narrow, so really the width of a road, and then it widens up again on the other side. On the other side of the island, there are abandoned villages, which are quite sort of spooky to look at. They're in a sort of valley, and you can look across. And there's all these um, lookout towers with, with very young soldiers in them with, with rifles. And um, you can see the villages, which have been stripped of their windows and doors so that they couldn't be used easily by, by soldiers to, to hide out. And um, these villages have become a sort of heartland for the Cypress mouflon sheep, which was an endemic species to, to Cyprus. It's almost like a, a national symbol, but its numbers were very tiny for a long time. But um, they've recovered their numbers within the buffer zone. Now there's several thousand of them, so it's become a sort of village for sheep. <laughs> Extraordinary. And there's, there's a lot of animal stuff like this. There's some really big ideas in here too. And you write that the roots of our ecological crisis can be traced back to Judeo-Christian arrogance towards nature. And I'd like you just to, to expand on that, really. 
I think that, that ties into this idea of, you know, are we stewards of the earth? You know, that, that question of us assuming that we're at the top of, of a pyramid, of, you know, humans here, and then we have this sort of, you go down and down, and then the plants are the least, you know, important. And uh, I think increasingly we understand the cognitive powers of other species, and we understand that often our attempts to, to fix the environment, which I agree, you know, if, if we've done the wrong, it's a good thing to fix what we can. But sometimes it does backfire. And I think understanding the, the capabilities of other species and, and when to surrender control and allow things to take its own direction can be an important concept for us to wrestle with. So I think that that is certainly the sort of main issue that I, I chew over a, a great deal. And, and I don't know that my book is, a, well, it's certainly not a polemic. You know, I don't really come down and say we should do this, that, and that. It's more of a book about questioning values or aesthetics or... And faith. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, what you said about it being an optimistic book, I mean, is it's the time to be writing optimistic books about the environment. But I think well, these stories did show me that we have, in many cases, a, a way out in as much as nature can recover or regenerate. And often it might not be in exactly the way that it was before, and it might not be in the way that we would like it to be. But there are often species that, that can make things work, whatever the situation. And um, that can put conservationists in a very sort of weird ethical quandaries sometimes. So there was a case down near Swansea where they were showing me around the former site, where they call it Copperopolis. There were lots of smelters there, which means that a lot of the ground is very, um, it's tainted with heavy metals. But it's a site of special scientific interest because of this amazing plant assemblage, as they call it, that, that grows up there. You call it calaminarian grassland, which are like metal-loving plants. Um, and the issue is that to begin with, when they were conserving, they were sort of cleaning up all the mess, quite rightly. But it turned out that by doing that, they were impacting the numbers of some of the species that they were interested in, like the spring sandwort, which grows in places which have been tainted with heavy metal. And so what do they do? You know, do they scrape it back up again and, and make it worse again, you know? So it's, I think for me, luckily I don't have to make the decisions, so they become a sort of thought experiment. And they're really big ethical quandaries at the heart of everyday conservation, mm -hmm. um, which I find fascinating. You mentioned Chernobyl briefly. Tell us what you found there. Absolutely. So I guess I almost started with the exclusion zone there because it felt to me to be a uh, a poster child example of the phenomenon I was interested in, this sort of idea of, of regeneration. And it's such an unusual example, having this enormous exclusion zone that's so well studied. You know, there are a lot of scientists who go in. And so I must have been in there, I think it was in 2018 or 2019, certainly before the current conflict. And I was there to write about the return of many, many species to the zone. So we've seen an increase of wolves in that area sevenfold. We've seen a return of bears for the first time in more than a century. Things like black storks, a sort of species that, that don't like humans, have found an enormous sanctuary inside the exclusion zone. And there, the issue is very much, it's a sort of uncomfortable trade-off, the, the lack of disturbance from humans versus the very real risk from the radiation that's still within the zone. So you do find that the radioactive contamination 
in, in many parts of the zone, it has sort of nosedived off because of the passage of time. So iodine, which was the isotope we're most worried about as humans because it, it lodges and causes a, a lot of damage, that has a half-life, I think, of 14 years. So it's, 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 it's gone down rather a lot. I think it's now a 16th of what it was before. It depends a bit on which... Um, isotope landed where? So it had a very irregular contamination. They call it leopard spotting. And so a lot of the contamination landed quite close to the re reactor. And there was an area then called the Red Forest. So this was an area of pine trees. And pine trees really don't cope well at all with radioactive contamination. They all died. And that's why it was called the Red Forest. They go that rust color. They have now regrown, but it tends to be species that are able to cope better with the contamination. So silver birch are very hardy friends, are, are everywhere there, and a lot of broadleaf species predominate. And I did find some pines which had gone, I don't think you would call them mutant, but they have grown in very strange ways. And that's more common among the pine trees because of their, you know, if you cut one down, actually, you will see where the accident happened because it has got a normal sort of light color at the heart of it where it was growing with thick rings. And then on the outside, it goes very dark red, and that's because it's not been able to grow very much, so the rings are very thin, so it becomes like a sort of target if you cut one in half. So some species are, are better able to cope than others. And um, yeah, there's a, a lot of scientific controversy over you know, what's doing well and, and how alarmed we need to be. There are a group of American scientists, three or four of them, who tend to work together, who are very concerned particularly about um, the microbiota in the forest in the worst contaminated regions, like our leaves being broken down, that kind of thing, and uh, spiders, things like this, things that are not very mobile. Generally, I would say that most scientists working in, in radioecology in that region are a lot more optimistic. I don't know if that's a function of what species you're looking at, because of course things like wolves, they, they move a lot, so they will only be in the most dangerous areas sometimes. But generally speaking, although the radiation doesn't do them any good, they do seem to be able to survive long enough to breed. And so the numbers have increased. And over time, the, the contamination is going down. And the babies that it, they produce are fine? Yes, I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the accident, there were a lot of reports of traumatic abortions among the creatures very close in the worst affected areas. But over time, I don't think that's, you know, it's very difficult to say because you don't see everything, you know, you're, you're surveying. So the question for the scientists have to be, um, you know, what is the incidence of, you know, mutations which happen naturally? Are they happening more? or at natural levels. And so that's a very difficult thing because you have to look at thousands to be able to get a, a sense of sort of percentages, that kind of thing. So that's very tricky. And I think the good thing about, about Chernobyl until very recently was that it, had, it was allowed to settle so well. And I think that that was the great worry, you know, when we saw tanks coming through, and we saw uh, pictures of Russian soldiers digging in, in the Red Forest area. You know, a huge amount of fear because um, that danger is still very much present in the ground, and the reason that all of this recovery has happened is because it had been allowed to, to settle and to recover and to, you know, to grow over. So I think it is a, a great relief to, to feel things are, are back under control. Mm. There's a, a little passage you could read about Chernobyl. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read from the end of that chapter. I often choose this section because I think it gets across a little bit of the, the flavor of the book, which is sort of like, how do, how do these places feel? You know, I think that that's my, my main concentration. The zone is full of hotspots. 
Sometimes they have been marked by small yellow lollipop signposts whose triangular faces were the nuclear trefoil, the international symbol for ionizing radiation in red. These signs are planted throughout the zone, marking places to avoid. They're not dangerous exactly, but you shouldn't stand there long. At the city limits, we pass another on the side of the road. Can we stop, I say, and the driver shrugs. I get out and cross to the verge by the sign and keep stepping until I hear the warble of the dosimeter. All I see is a field of thick, tussocky grass poking through a thin layer of snow, ungrazed, unmown. Pine seedlings are bristling on the edges of the clearing amid a shimmer of birch, thin upper limbs of russet and wine over silvered, glimmering torsos. A thin white mist hangs about a foot over the ground, ethereal, waiting to be parted. It has started to snow. Heavy flakes fall in slow motion onto my hair and my crown. I shut my eyes, feeling cold fingers touching my face, and visualize the radiation washing over me, bathing me in a current of which I am only abstractly aware, whose existence is a matter of faith. It is one thing to understand the concept in a lecture, I think, Another, altogether, to comprehend your body at the mercy of it. It takes a certain mystical frame of mind, one I am not unfamiliar with. I surrender myself to it, to its greater power. I feel my boundaries blur and grow indistinct. Gamma rays pass through me, on their way elsewhere. After a minute or so, I step away, and I hear the siren fall to a crackle. I feel nothing, I think. I'm not afraid. Wow, really is spine-tingling, isn't it? Just wonderful. It, the, the second part of the book, you look at humans who, who remain. Detroit, absolutely fascinating study. You've got an urban environment, once thriving, the centre of the automobile industry, and now abandoned it. And you, you draw parallels between the way nature processes decay and the way that humans interact with the decaying environment. And I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit more. In Detroit, I was really digging down into that idea of, you know, what is abandonment? And um, what was really interesting in Detroit was the way that these sort of subcultures have sprung up dealing with the abandonment that is everywhere. And, and so there are, what would you call them, scrappers, wreckers, that, that will go into abandoned buildings and strip them for parts. So I came across this idea of um, this word of domicology, which is the study of the life cycle of buildings. And it is a really good analogy with this sort of the way that, that you know, we live and die and are recycled. And these guys go in and they start taking down the most valuable bits. So it might be, you know, metal pipes and anything sort of metal structures. And then over time, they, they start digging down to the less valuable things. And, and then you're left with the, the skeleton of a building. And uh, Detroit, well, the, one of the ways that the government there has been trying to deal with the, the widespread abandonment in, in many suburbs in Detroit is to knock those buildings down. But many of the very biggest ones, which I think there's some hope by those who own them that they'll find a new life in some way, um, are still left standing. There's like, these enormous white elephants living around the city, the Packard plant, which is an enormous car factory. It's just sort of there, and, and you can't not see it. You know, it, it's so huge. It's like a city within a city. But otherwise, you can drive through neighborhoods where, in an effort to try to stem this, this contagion of abandonment that can spread through streets, they will knock them down. And, and there are regions where you can drive through, and, and there is the road remains there, sort of suburban layouts. 
all cracked through and there are power lines still or, or phone lines and, and there's often you know, the foundation of the houses that were there before and sometimes even the, the garden plants which have regrown from where they've been taken down to ground level. And that's very strange because it is very much the, you know, the palimpsest of the past. You know, it's, it's right there and you can walk through it. So it's, it's an unusual city to visit and you know, it's, it's kind of a, got a fun and quite scrappy character to it. You know, people are chatty and um, I don't know, I really enjoyed being in Detroit and the, the feeling of, of people sort of coming back. So that chapter ended up being sort of how do people, you know, what are the impacts of abandonment on human psychology? And in Detroit, often that's been actually very negative. So it, it, abandoned buildings tend to be associated with poor mental health, with violent crime particularly, and, and this sense of fear. Because if you live in a street that's got lots of abandoned buildings, you do tend to be more afraid on a daily basis, and that impacts your property prices, and, and it spirals on like this. So people in Detroit um, have been sort of fighting against this. So this chapter became, you know, how do you reverse the spread of abandonment if you understand it as something contagious, which is definitely how those who, you know, authorities in Detroit talk about it. They talk about it as a blight, you know, as a crop disease that will spread. And they use this analogy very literally. So they will talk about, you know, cutting off a diseased limb, by which they mean knocking down all the houses on the street because the street is felt to be blighted. And, and for me, you know, this is a word that's quite common in, in America in urban planning. But for me, that's a very provocative idea. I'd never come across it really before. And so I sort of dug down a little bit into this sense of, of contagion and, and how one can fight against it. So speaking to people who, you know, they, they maybe look after empty houses around them to try and stave it off around their own house or or people who cut the grass. That, that's Tom. Tell us about Tom. And yeah, he runs the, the mower gang. And so it was a, a group of, uh, he described himself as like middle-aged dads who, who love um, their ride-on mowers. And so they will take them into the center of town and go to things like old, um, there's loads of abandoned schools because there are so few children in some areas. So they would go and they would cut all the grass and they would do up the, the playground. I mean, the school buildings itself would be kind of terrifying, actually. You know, these sort of empty shells of buildings spray-painted all over, but outside they would have well-cared-for children's playgrounds and everything would be cut um, down and they saved an old concrete velodrome. And, you know, I don't know, that, yeah, that scrappiness of, you know, like, right, we're gonna go out and fix it. Because for a long time, just when the, the city was going bankrupt, they didn't have street sweepers. They didn't have people cutting municipal grass. You know, all of these things did go very downhill very quickly. And then they the city declared bankruptcy, and now it's the feeling is that it's coming back. Mm. But I found that very moving, the way people sort of railed against it. And, you know, it's, it's almost a sort of opposite chapter to everything else where I'm celebrating the abandonment. And there I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, well, you know, if, if it's you, you might not be so happy about it. How do you fight against it? What are the sort of social forces that that can turn this around. Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape is by Cal Flynn. It's published by HarperCollins. That conversation was recorded at The Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Emily Sands. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.